Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, with that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Uh, we now have part two with Ron Thiessen, President, CEO, and Director of Northern Dynasty Minerals, a copper and gold-focused developer that is in process of advancing the Tier 1 Pebble Project in southwest Alaska. Northern Dynasty is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol NAK and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NDM. Ron, it's a pleasure to have you on. Andrew, thanks for the opportunity. So, Ron, what what scale? Give us a give us a scale of of disasters that the design, the new design of the mine is being built uh, w- will be built to withstand. So, even if there is some type of a disaster, what are the backup features of the design, and what would it take to truly disrupt the local ecosystem, or e- is it even possible outside of intentional acts? Well, we we so let's start off. We we don't accept that it is. I mean, we think that that we can design this to prevent all of those things, even if, even if they occur. And that, uh, um, so there's a couple of things. The, what's at the forefront of most people's mind is, is, uh, these tailings failures, tailing storage facility failures. And at the core of all of them is typically an engineering flaw. And, and it's usually well, it's not usually. It is a situation where the storage facility is not being operated in accordance with the engineering design. As I said before, the uh, these facilities are designed to store sand. They aren't water dams. They they have water on top of them, far away from the front of of the tailing storage facility, because you put the water up there to allow the the tailing sand to settle out and then you recycle that water. So you store a bit of water up there, but that's only the water that you're using in the process. Now, if you get excessive um, water, like Mount Pauly is in a rain shadow area, they don't have sufficient uh, evaporation. So if they get a couple of seasons of high uh, snowpack and melt onto the site, they actually are net accumulators of water and they have to do something with that and they they need to discharge that water and so um, otherwise the tailing storage facility is going to get saturated it's going to overflow and you're going to have a failure just like they did so to mitigate that we've said okay we're gonna we're gonna put water treatment plants in so that when we say if it ever comes and, and you know we're designing a storage facility and embankments that a won't allow that to happen and b the the one in a hundred year one in two hundred year events in terms of snowfall rainfall that we will be able to deal with the water and in the event we have to discharge water we have two state um, water treatment plants very large-scale water treatment plants that we are putting in your typical mind would not build it the typical mind would say, listen, that water is going to be adequate. I mean, at Gibraltar, we discharge water because it meets standard. Many mines around the world are allowed to discharge water. People say, oh, isn't that water poisonous and toxic? It's not. It's natural water. It's rainfall water to a large extent. Um, right. And, and, and it, you don't want to accumulate it. You want to get it, what I call it, you want to get it off the mountain so that it doesn't create a problem. So the design feature is a lower slope and more reinforcement on the face of the of the storage facility to give it more strength. Second is um, water treatment plants so that we will continuously discharge water and we'll never have too much water up there. The next, so that's dealing with, with water issues. The next is seismicity and everybody goes, okay, well, we know that Alaska has seismicity. I mean, most people don't understand where that seismicity exists and and they don't know about the ring of fire and they don't know about the subduction zone they just know that there's been earthquakes up in alaska in 1964 there was a massive quake and most recently in, in anchorage there was a pretty sizable quake the reality is that, that subduction zone is at such a distance from from uh, pebble um, 
that by the time any Earth movement reaches Pebble, it's negligible. In fact, this recent, most recent earthquake that hit Anchorage, I'm sure you're aware of it, you know, it caused a considerable amount of damage in Anchorage. People didn't wake up, didn't feel it in in, uh, in Iliamna, which is 20 miles south of, uh, of Pebble. Our seismic readings um, uh, out at the site actually picked up hardly any movement. So we don't get that. Still, there's other um, potential seismic um, features or that, that exist that we know of. I mean, the USGS has done a tremendous job on mapping um, all of Alaska. And so we know that, that there are some historical faults in different areas because continents change. I mean, uh, you know, right. as much as we like to think that, that nothing moves, nothing changes, it's constantly moving and changing. So there's there's something called the Lake Clark Fault. So Lake Clark is about 30 miles to the east of us, and and you know one of the reasons the, the lake is there is probably this originally uh, is due to, to to this fault. Well, the USGS they've mapped that fault. It doesn't even come onto the to the Pebble property, let let alone close to the tailings embankment or the tailings storage facility. But we said let's assume. And, and the other thing is that fault, there's no evidence to ourselves, USGS, or ACOM that, that that fault has moved since the last ice age. So that's 11, 12,000 years ago. So it's been dormant for 11, 12,000 years. It probably is dormant forever. But let's assume that it's not dormant. Let's assume that it's an active fault. Let's determine what, you know, that fault, strike slip fault, what kind of event would would it trigger and what would the ground acceleration be and then let's assume that it not only runs onto the pebble ground but it runs directly beneath the tailing storage facility what's its ground acceleration let's take that and add 25 to 30 percent to that and let's design a facility that survives that now um, chile about five years ago, they had a massive quake. And the epicenter of that quake was quite a distance from the city of Santiago, yet it caused massive damage in the city of Santiago. But about midway between Santiago and the epicenter was an Anglo-American uh, tailing storage facility. Yep. And do you know that that while they had shaking at the at the flotation plant and concentrator there, they shut that down, zero impact on the tailing storage facility. They had, they had slight settlement of the sands, but nothing else. There was no cracks in the embankment. There was no loss of any water in the tor- storage tailing facility. It, it actually performed far better than, than 90% of the buildings in Santiago, and it was closer to the epicenter. So, I mean... If, if a tailing storage facility is built properly and operated in accordance with design, it will survive all these things. If it's not, it won't. So I'm just saying we are, we are going to extreme lengths to design a facility to survive a, a quake on a fault that doesn't exist on our property. Right. No, I think that puts it into good perspective. And I... I have to. You mentioned some other some other significant quakes. If you look at you know 2011 Fukushima as well, uh, you know yeah. the bulk the bulk of uh, all of those. Uh, actually, matter of fact, all of those plants, uh, with the exception of, of of the one at Fukushima, which just didn't get the diesel uh, to keep the backup plants running yeah. uh, to cool the reactor. Uh, a number of those plants, people actually fled to for protection because they were, they were so well built. And if you put that into perspective, they were so well built. And most of the plants in Japan are quite old; they're you know thirty plus years old uh, or yeah. more. Um, so well, and then and then it was the tidal in, wave, the tidal wave that caused most of the physical damage. You know, that's that's correct. It was a, that's right. And and yep. And and, and and because it inundated everything and and caused all the generators to go off and everything. It, it that's what caused the meltdown. Now, we, we are a long way away <laughs> um, 
from the coast. I mean, we're we're <laughs> right. 85 miles inland, so from yep. from any any subduction uh, caused waves. So that we're not going to see any waves near Pebble. Right, and I and I think the point is is the the point is 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 these these structures that serve a commercial purpose, whether it be a mine or a nuclear power reactor, they are built to withstand these types of events. And that's why you have so little of these types of accidents that might occur. I mean, the nuclear power industry has operated for some 63 years, and there has really only been two events, Chernobyl and Fukushima. Three Mile yeah. Island was not really any event at all, except for media exposure for no good reason. Yeah. And so no, the exactly. bottom line of it is, is, is uh, there is a substantial uh, qualified folks, engineers and science behind the design. They don't just, you know, throw oh, this crap up without code. You raised it before. People get on airplanes and don't give it a thought. <laughs> and and you know, fundamentally, who who operated the protractor and 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 the calculator to determine that that thing can fly? I mean, you're That's prepared right. to get on it. You take your family on it, your children, your wife. And, and go to twenty, thirty thousand feet in the air, and and you're confident that he's going to land it on the ground, and um, right. y- you aren't confident that we can build a stationary uh, tailings impoundment structure that that you know can can stay put. Um, right. Yeah. Again, no, it's, it's it, very there's good. a huge there's a huge disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I've, I've looked at I've looked at the new the new design there, and the and the slopes are incredibly conservative. <laughs> yep. So uh, moving on to some other stuff, uh, get get through some additional talking points here. So clarify for us just real quick, the, the jurisdiction of the of the uh, project property. Is it on state lands, sovereign lands, federal lands, or a mix? It's it's on state land. A um, bit of a unique history to this, this uh, state land. So in Alaska, you, you have uh, effectively, I guess, four kinds of, of land or property interest you have federal land you have state land and then you have native corp land and private land i mean native corp land is very much like private land in fact i think um if you call it private land i think native corporations in alaska own 90 percent of all the private land in alaska but we are effectively on state land uh the federal government is the largest landowner in alaska um so we're on state land. Okay. Um, this land was acquired through a land exchange agreement, 1974. The Bristol Bay, or sorry, the Coquitlam Land Exchange Agreement. Um, the federal government wanted to create Lake Clark National Park, and the land around Lake Clark was owned by the Cook Inlet Native Corporation. And the Fed uh, asked uh, Cook Inlet if they would exchange their land around Lake Clark for this land west of, of Lake Clark, which today we'd call Pebble Land. Um, and they said, no, I suspect that they looked at their land and saw these towering timbers all over the place. They looked at the Pebble property and there wasn't a tree in the valley. And they said, no, oh, this is a bit skinny for us. So the Fed then approached the state of Alaska to do a three-way deal to exchange state land that the, the state owned on Cook Inlet that was heavily timbered. Um, with the Cook Native Corporation, and then the state of Alaska would exchange the, um, the land that they got in that exchange with the Pebble land. And it's it's a wonderful document, and the best part about it is the preamble is that is that basically the state is giving up their potentially income-producing land in return for um, this land west of Lake Clark because of its geological prospectivity which the state will be able be allowed to develop unencumbered. So it's it it it's got even more um discussion around its geological prospectivity and its development potential than, than any other state land in the state. And then add to that there's been two land use um legislative uh committees struck and and hearings uh, and studies completed on Pebble, one in the 1990s, and then one I believe in 2006. And and both those studies uh, involved a a public hearing process, and both of them involved the legislature. Both of them determined that the highest and best use uh, 
was the development of the geological prospectivity and the 2006 um, study, I believe, mentioned Pebble. It does mention Pebble, but I believe it's some 40 times that it mentions Pebble and and the economic opportunity. In addition, uh, the USGS, I want to say 72, 73, uh, did a study on the geological prospectivity of the Pebble area, noting that it was highly prospective for for Arizona-type copper porphyry deposits. And, and that, you know, they felt that there was copper moly, copper gold, and, and those kinds of uh, geological prospectivity. Now, it did mention that given the lack of infrastructure, the economics would be challenged, but this is back in the 1970s. But they identified this area as, as you know, being as prospective as, as areas of Arizona. So nothing new about any of this, and it's it's had, right. you know, pretty decent public hearing. Now... The good news is we're on state land. The bad news is we're on state land. Um, so right. the state is really the agency that, that uh, is the relevant uh, party in terms of permitting in the state of Alaska. They own they own the mineral rights. We don't actually own the mineral rights. We will obtain a lease on the mineral rights, and for that we will pay a rent called a royalty to the state of Alaska. So it's it's in the state's interest to have this developed to earn the rent, the royalty, as part of, of the income of the state to provide services for their constituency, the citizens of the state of Alaska. Um, because we're on state land and not native corp land, we don't have a, kind of a natural support base from the native corporations, the regional corporations. So back in the early 70s, there was something called the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act that was entered into that provided 12 regional corporations. They created these large regions in Alaska based on geographic elements. And and the federal government gave or ceded about 16% of the state of Alaska to those 12 regional corporations. Plus they shared about a billion dollars cash based on, I think, population base at the time. And, And the mandate for those corporations was to go out and use their assets and that money to develop those assets to earn income, earn revenues to provide to their constituents. So they, they treated these native corporations just like they treated the state of Alaska. Here, we're going to give you some potentially productive assets. You go out and use those assets to create income so that you can provide for your constituents, your native shareholders. Now, some of these companies have been unbelievably successful. So Arctic Slope and Doyon have obviously um, um, uh, oil and gas holdings in the North Slope, plus they become big service providers in the North Slope. Nana Corporation owned Red Dog. They owned the mineral deposit, and so that's been brought into production by Kamenko Tech. They're earning royalties. They've got a 35% JV interest. Donlin was owned by the Chalista Native Corporation. And so in all those cases, the Native Corporations became, you know, ardent promoters of the project. And so then people in the lower 48 and most non-Native Alaskans said, well, you know, this is in the interest of a Native Corporation. This would be good for the Native Corporation because, and, and they're promoting it, so we should be in favor of it. Therein lies the rub for Pebble. We're on state land, not on native land, and so the Bristol Bay Native Corporation um, isn't a natural ally in that respect. They should be for spinoff for the rest of their constituency, but um, they changed. When we first acquired Pebble, Bristol Bay Native Corporation was ardently in favor. They came to see Bob and I on two different occasions as I like to say, we were on their Christmas card list. Bob still has his Christmas cards from BBNC, you know, asking what can we do to help you move this Pebble project along because they'd been following it in all the years Kamenko had it. But over time, um, for reasons we won't go into, they they became anti-Pebble, and and their view is that, you know, what's in it for us? Why would we promote something that doesn't directly provide us with with uh, revenues and resources so um, and and Chalista was a big supporter of Donlin so to mitigate that 
we we are are going to create an entity. The great thing that ANCSA did is is it made I like to say listen all of your Alaska Native listeners don't don't uh, take umbrage with me I'm, I'll apologize in advance but it it created capitalists out of out of the Native uh, population of Alaska and entrepreneurs and it's it is so much better than the reservation system in the lower 48 or, or in Canada. I mean, these people do control their own destiny, whereas reservation lands are held by federal government in trusteeship for them. It's, I, I just, the difference right. is palpable. And uh, and so is going to be owned by Native people living in the region and Native villages in the region. Now, Perfect. we've said we've yeah. said to Bristol Bay Native Corporation, if you want to work with us on this, we're happy to work with you on this. But if you aren't, then we're simply going to go ahead on our own, and, and it's it's going to be the people of Western Alaska that's going to have this interest. That will help, okay. again, answer this, what's in it for me. So, so Ron, I, I haven't checked the GDP of Alaska uh, recently, but can you can you kind of give it a perspective? I mean, how 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 important would this project be to the longevity and sustainability of of the uh, Alaskan government? Um, so, I mean, Alaska Alaska currently um, has been running, you know, uh, a fiscal deficit. I think their expenditure base is is roughly um, six billion dollars a year, and the revenue base has been running at about three billion dollars a year. So they've been running a three billion round numbers, three billion dollar deficit, which is, you know, for a population population base of about six hundred seventy five seven hundred fifty thousand people. That's that's pretty significant, and 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 cuts to services would have to be massive. So. Um, they aren't in a great place right now, and it and, and it's predominantly due to to obviously oil and gas prices and 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 getting themselves into a place where they were spending money that they had, but that money has now disappeared, so it's virtually impossible to take those services away. And and Alaska is a very big state, and and it's you know its population base is very disparate. It's they've got these tiny villages out all over the place. And trying to provide services to such remote locations at such far distances. I mean, like I said, a gallon of gas in Iliamna is six bucks. It's because it has to be flown in right. by DC six. You know, uh, a half gallon of milk is twelve dollars. So Iliamna isn't the only town. All of those little towns are the same. If you're trying to provide education, you're trying to provide health care, it's all the same. It all comes in on airplanes flies long distances and so the generally the service is not as good as it is in the city and it's 10 times more expensive so alaska's got a it, it needs to generate more revenues and i think you know mining is one of the keys i mean we we did an economic study back in the anglo days and you know starting at the at the lake and pen borough level um you know their annual budget at Lake and Penn Borough is about three and a half four million dollars. Pebbles' contribution at the size and scale we're talking today to the Lake and Penn Borough would be about eighteen million dollars, nineteen million dollars. So at least a fourfold or maybe a fivefold increase in their revenues. So you can imagine what that would do for a population of eighteen hundred people. Right. I mean, impressive, impressive. Um, then you're looking at 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 the the state level. I mean, you're probably talking something in the area of a billion to you know a billion three billion four in um, state taxes and royalties. Absolutely substantial. I think it uh, is something that they need to seriously look at. So on on that, uh, two questions kind of related to that. Um, well, yeah, let me ask this one first. Uh, this one came to my head here. Um, so with the newly elected governor of Alaska, uh, Mr. Dunleavy, how, how is the relationship with him and, and how do you plan to reinforce Pebble's importance with the state government? Well, I think, I think uh, you know, Dunleavy's got a, a direct relationship with mining. I mean, he's, he's married to a lady whose father was one of the signatories 
to the original Anxa settlement and who was um, an, either an officer or a director of Nanocorp when Red Dog was done. Um, I, his daughters, I know, have worked at Red Dog and have all attended university. I think two of them have graduated and are professionals. He knows what mining can do. I mean, wages um, in the mining industry are the highest wages around. And, and mining, uh, as compared to oil and gas, and there's nothing, I'm not knocking oil and gas, but mining is far more labor intensive than oil and gas. And in the oil and gas business, it's all about finding it. And then, then you put it in a pipe and, and you send it somewhere. So you don't do much processing and there's not a lot of labor involved. Well, finding it is about 25% of the exercise in mining. Processing it, and that's very la that that's labor intensive, is probably the other 50%. Then transporting it to the final 25%. But mining has a lot of jobs, and they're high paying. And I and I know in Mike's side because I listened to his first ad address to uh, the community, which he did to the Alaska Mining Association after his election was he talked about mining's potential contribution. And he said, you know, uh, where have all the high-paying jobs gone? How come, you know, we don't have more high-paying jobs? We, we're a resource state. I mean, you know, and, and one of his mandates was let's, let's get more mines built. And then he went on to say, you know, all the services that the prior administration wanted to cut, if they simply had one or two mines, those tax revenues would provide for all those services. So he said, instead of cutting the services, let's build two mines in Alaska. Absolutely. I mean, how much logic does that make? That's that's fantastic logic. So I, you know, I, I think, and it's not, he's not saying let's irresponsibly go about this. I know that he subsequently said, you know, with respect to Pebble, I'm not, I'm not saying one way or the other. We have to go through a permitting process. My state agency has to opine on this before I opine. And that's right. that's all we've ever said is we've said, let's go through the permitting process. If we can't get through the permitting process, we don't deserve a, uh, a, a permit. But having spent the amount of money we've spent, I know we can do this. I know that we can do it responsibly. And I know the economic benefits of this for everybody. I mean, I tell you, I've been on many mine sites in the world, and, and this is based on its grade and its configuration. This is just one of the greatest mines that sits up there today. I mean, there were there were bigger and better mines in history, but those mines have all been found, and most of them have been mined right. out. You go, yep. you go and look, see if you can find a, a one percent copper mine in the world today that's a billion tons or more. I mean, they're not being done. I mean, QB, these mines that are coming into production today in Latin America are 0 0.6, 0 0.65. You know, yep. Pebble's way better than that. It's not at 4,000 meters altitude, and it's not in the middle of the world's driest desert. <laughs> right. So and, so uh, the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court just heard a case of Virginia uranium which uh, you might be familiar with the case, but the, the case is going to provide when they issue the ruling is going to provide some context of the issue of state lands versus federal lands versus state rights before federal authority with regards to mining environment and to some degree economic and strategic importance. Do you see the Pebble Project as potentially an asset that the federal government would deem of national importance, strategic importance uh, from an economic and national security standpoint? Well, um, I can't say that we've gone to that level on, on this project. We, we think that this, this is very important. We could, we could certainly supply at least 25, 30% of the copper that, that, that America needs. We also have a mineral called rhenium that reports to the moly concentrate. And, and rhenium you know, is a very important metal uh, especially in military applications, in in uh, you know these these uh, very unique engines that that uh, jet engines that the military uses. Uh, apparently, there's a significant rhenium content in the steel alloys that that are used in jet fan blades. 
Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing, again, it's just a natural thing. Technology is, is doing amazing things, like with niobium. All of a sudden, you can build steel that has um, ultra-strength capability and is, is lightweight like aluminum if you use niobium as the alloying agent. Rhenium does very much the same. Allows a jet fan blade to have this super strength, but maintain flexibility without being brittle. And so, um, you know, there there are other issues that come with with being a strategic asset, and 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 a Canadian company maybe. But um, we think that that small s strategic. Yes, this is an extremely important asset for America and Alaska. And and I go back to that that. Uh, 1974 Cook Inlet Land Exchange Agreement that says that Alaska is accepting this piece of property in exchange because of its geological prospectivity and that it will be allowed to develop that unhindered. So, um, you know, I think a state's uh, rights need to, to be a very large component in the decision making. I mean, that anti-pebble ballot initiative was was struck down very substantially in in the last midterm election, and I think that's an indication that Alaskans want to see this project go through permitting, so that they have an opportunity to weigh its benefits. I agree. Yeah, I think you know, they a... want they want they want those engineers to say first and foremost. It's not going to damage the fishery. Okay, now that we're past that, what are the benefits? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and hopefully it'll never get to the get to the level of having to uh, argue before the Supreme Court. It sounds like there's a number no. of uh, catalysts that have lined up uh, in front well, that, uh, that will allow this to probably to go forward with with uh, you know we're we're getting there. The, the finish line is in sight. Yes, I agree. So you mentioned some other minerals. Um, so we know the major minerals measured and indicated at Pebble, but are there some other minerals of significance? Uh, so the, the principal okay. metals are copper and gold and molybdenum. And then the minor metals are silver and rhenium and palladium. Palladium, and okay. Palladium. Yes, there's some palladium. You know, there's, there's other things. That can ha- you know, there's also sulfur. We have pyrite, which is you know, an iron element. And, uh, and, and so, um, it depends on the, on the prices, but I mean, we've looked at producing, uh, a pirate, what we call a pyrite concentrate. So, and that has sulfur, iron, and, and some gold in it. And if we produced a pyrite concentrate, um, is it economic to ship it, say to Asian pyrite smelters, sulfur smelters, um, to recover the sulfur, the iron, and the gold. I mean, you know, there's there's a little story, if you don't mind, if I add a little entertainment, because we said this was for entertainment, right? At the beginning. <laughs> sure. There's a smelter in Shandong province, uh, China, and it's it's one of the world's preeminent smelters. It's world class. It was it was built by Autocompu. It's one of the most modern smelters. I swear you could eat off the floor in this smelter. It's not anybody's image of a smelter but its nickname is the chicken smelter now how does a smelter become the chicken smelter well the guy that built it is probably the largest chicken farmer in the world he supplies all the chickens for the kentucky fried chicken outlets in china japan korea and taiwan now i don't know have you been to asia there's 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 a, a kfc in downtown beijing that is a city square block. The Chinese love KFC. So this guy produces a lot of chickens. And aside from from feathers, what do chickens produce a lot of? Chicken poop. Chicken poop. Well, these are these are <laughs> hopefully not not too many egg laying chickens. These are for for <laughs> meat consumption. They produce a lot of poop. And what's a component of chicken poop is ammonia. And if you look at at, at uh, fertilizer, what's fertilizer got a lot of? Well, fertilizer's got a lot of, of uh, phosphate, 
ammonia and sulfur in it. So he went out and got himself some phosphate mines in China. He's got the ammonia from the poop. He said, how can I get myself some sulfur? Well, one of the byproducts of, of smelting copper concentrate is elemental sulfur. So he built himself a copper smelter. And that's why it's called the chicken smelter. <laughs> so, so we did a study. Now, it didn't work um, economically. Our, there was a point for about two years where it did work uh, producing a pyrite con, in which case Pebble would recover sulfur, iron, and additional gold from a pyrite concentrate. Now, if if, if perhaps America was really keen, they would say, you know, we should we should smelt some of this product on our own lands, but we don't want smelters. We want a better technology because there is a better technology out there than smelters, and that is is hydrometallurgical refineries, which Kennecott Rio Tinto was going to build a hydrometallurgical. A refinery for molybdenum concentrates at Bingham because Bingham also has high rhenium content, and and when you when you put your concentrate through a hydromet circuit, your recoveries go through the roof. Like a typical smelter will recover 90, 95 percent of your metal. Well, um, when you have a hydrometallurgical facility, you, you get up to 98 percent of the recovered metals. Rhenium is a low recovered metal, probably 50 percent, but in a hydromet plant, you recover um, 95 plus percent of it. So, I mean, I remember when, when uh, Governor Murkowski was governor of Alaska and we were having a coffee with the governor in, in London, Bob and I talking about this. And he said, well, damn, we need to build these hydrometallurgical things you're talking about in America. And I said, you know, actually, we should get the finished metal in America. You're shipping all this concentrate across the ocean and you're you're smelting and refining it in Asian smelters. Yep. But that's another story. Yeah, no, certainly interesting and and some of the uh, it's just it does it's wasteful and uh it needs it should be there should be some at least some capacity here in the, here in in the United States or or even, you know, you and the last smelter was permitted in in America 50 years ago. 1974 Mitsubishi permitted a smelter for I think Galveston, it was never built. No, it, it's it's incredible, Ron. And, and the other piece of that too is if you just look at again, not to not to go back to uh, to nuclear again, but the fuel cycle, yep. the the ability to uh, you know convert and enrich in the United States uh, is uh, almost almost is pretty much on its knees. There's there's almost yep. nothing left. And uh, and here we are, a country with you know 98 you know reactors or whatever it is, 99. Mm-hmm. And uh, here here we've got a outsource our uh, fuel cycle so it's uh it's it's a sad it's situation it, it just doesn't uh, make any sense so i want to get to some other questions here um so the epa under the trump administration seems to be an agency that has become reasonable again they seem to understand just a bit better the weight of environment economics and finding a balance so the interim administrator uh, mr wheeler appears to be on his way to being confirmed uh, has the Pebble team had a chance to meet with uh, him, and, and how is that relationship progressing? Well, I, I would say that that the EPA has gone back to to doing its job, which is uh, being an unbiased regulator, evaluating um, applications that are being put in by proponents, not not preparing applications for proponents and 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 preemptively opining on them. I mean, that's that's the whole thing, and so. This EPA, I mean, they're they're not any less rigorous than than the bulk of the people that were at the EPA in the Obama era. They're they're simply, I think, doing doing their job. And yes, uh, administrator or um, acting administrator Wheeler, I think, you know, is is doing a good job on that front. And I I hope he does get uh, confirmed. Um, have there been discussions with uh, with Wheeler? Um, um, I think Tom has met with him in in uh, in uh, Washington D.C., but right now there's not a, a great deal for us to discuss with him. It's it's all in uh, Region 10, and uh, the people that have been appointed to the project and that are part of the the 404 permitting process seem to be doing their job 
you know, uh, we're not, I'm not hearing anything back from the Pebble team about, you know, undue uh, issues around um, the evaluation process at this point in time. I mean, we'll get much more once the draft EIS comes out, but, you know, Kind of the the Army Corps of Engineers runs this, and and they 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 manage those agencies in terms of of the allocation of data and information, get all their questions back, and then hit us with RFIs, requests for information in response to what those agencies want to see. And I haven't heard uh, anything untoward coming out of the out of the EPA at this point in time. In fact, I, you know, I think I think. They're, they they know what their job is is and they've been doing it rigorously, holding our feet to the fire, which you know they should do. Right. So the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is working on the draft EIS, uh, Environmental yeah. Impact Study, and everyone expects a decision probably around 2020 2021. Give us your forward timeline, and even if it's just a rough ballpark of when the company of when you see the company being maybe fully permitted construction started and then operational are we talking like 2028 2030 where we where we at so so the again just to uh, be absolutely clear um the the main timelines are actually the army corps of engineers and not ours they're the ones that set that and so they've come out most recently with a definitive date mid mid-February for the release of the draft EIS, followed by, by a, a 90-day um, public comment period, which I believe would start probably beginning of March, and uh, targeting the issuance of a final EIS. Again, here's a target, a goal. It's, they're not, it's not a commitment. This is a target of the end of the year. And, and then a decision on the uh, raw record of decision by uh, spring, call it March 2021, and, and or sorry, 20, 2020, and then um, the actual permit probably 45, 60 days after that. Um, that that is your 404 permit, or what we we call the umbrella permit. You couldn't actually start any construction off of that because you need construction permits, and the construction right. permits come from the state, almost all of them. There there are some other uh, permits that, that the feds are involved with, particularly with respect to the, the gas pipeline and the like, but these are all construction permits. So the question is really about when would state permitting start? The earliest we could start, and so this will be a function of working with the partner once we get the partner on board. The earliest it could start would be sometime this year, probably the latter quarter. And and we're saying that state permitting will be about a two, two and a half year process. Now, the state permits come in stages. So the the first permits you want and need are the permits for the road and the port. So that you could you could start, you could pioneer a road in. You can't build anything at site until you've got the road in. So it's important to get that permit in place and the road and port permits will probably take about 12 months so if you were going to be as expeditious or as early as timing you'd start permitting this year you'd probably have your your road construction and port permits let's say late 2020 early 2021 and you could probably in the summer of 2021 start with the road. It would take about a year to build the road and get everything ready to accept things at the mine site. So now you're talking 2022, 2023, and then it's about a three-year, 36-month construction timeline uh, to completion of of the mill and all the infrastructure. So you're probably talking start up 2025. Yeah, certainly. A little, yeah, absolutely. A little bit uh, quicker than I had envisioned. So that's that's good to good to hear it coming from you and, and what your estimates are on it. Um, so moving on to a, another uh, kind of subject. So the, the mining business recently saw the merger of Rand Gold Resources with Barrick Gold. Now we're seeing Newmont and Gold Corp in talks to join forces to compete with Barrick. So Mark Bristow, 
uh, through his performance and actions at Rangold, seems to have a strong drive for needle-moving growth uh, through the newly created uh, mining giant Barrick. Do you see Northern Dynasty as an asset that can satisfy the hunger of a larger mining business that is looking for a long-term, globally significant value proposition? Yes. <laughs> is that okay. a simple enough answer? <laughs> very, very well. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, so, yeah, I mean, Mark has, has kind of, I mean, no, I know Mark well, and 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 uh, he's a he's one of the best you know operational CEOs out there, and a brilliant guy, good team you know, and and a hardcore operator. He's he's put a couple lines in the sand around what kinds of returns they're looking at, but also what kind of assets they're looking for. And and Pebble does tick the box on almost every one of those projects. I mean, he does talk about looking for a 15% IRR, $1,000 gold. I mean, gold isn't our largest um, metal produced. It's, it's, you know, copper is. So it is, a to meet his standard, it would be a function of what the other metal prices are. But certainly, capability of, of producing uh, large amounts of copper, or large amounts of gold, over very long time frames, yes. And he's even identified, he's even said, you know, some of these big copper projects um, that have a large gold component, which is interesting, then two of the, the biggest copper projects that, that Barrick have don't really have gold components, La Moana and, uh, and uh, Zaldivar in Chile. So my guess is those, those two are on the, on the uh, auction block. But... Um, yeah, all the all the, the gold companies and certainly Newmont is very very familiar with copper gold porphyries. Uh, Batu Hija was was a project that they had in Indonesia and and I mean I, I know lots of guys at Newmont too, people that worked directly at Batu Hijau for years and they said it was it was a great fantastic mine and had it not been for Indonesian nationalism uh, over ownership that came to the fore about five, six years ago, they would still have that mine. They would have invested billions more in it because there's many more years of reserves. The great thing about these porphyries is they're so long life. I mean, Bingham Canyon's been in production since the late 1800s. It's been, you know, an industrialized project from when the Guggenheims came in, I think, in the 1920s. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think that you have some some certainly some interesting suitors and and uh, along those lines, you know, Freeport has got a lot of weight on its shoulders right now coming off of Grassburg, but Freeport's another a copper business that uh, historically has been dominant, and so uh, you can't you can't say that they haven't looked or at least are thinking at this point about what they're going to do after uh, kind of leaving the Grassburg or at least starting to move towards a minority interest. I mean, Grassburg is very much like. Pebble, you know, uh, I, I often ask a question to you know, a lot of people is what's the largest gold mine in the world? It's a bit of a trick question. Everybody's starting to name off gold mines. They go, no, 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 it's a copper mine. You know, Grasberg is the biggest gold mine in the world. It produces over a million ounces a year. Right. You know, so uh, certainly Pebble would be capable. If you, you could build it large enough, at, you know, at, at probably 300,000 tons a day, um, it would produce million ounces if if you if you were to recover the the gold in pyrite you would probably produce right around a million ounces of gold a year so right uh, right so it puts it into perspective that, ron where you have yeah. you have a uh you know you have the asset so big it can be a it could be a leader in, in a number of things and uh it's it's interesting Pebble, interesting proposition pebbles a unique beast in that it's because the copper and the gold are are pretty significant in and of themselves it also makes an ideal vehicle for uh, a consortium, you know, a, a base metal company, a copper company, and a gold company. Yeah, it'll be interesting, and I'm sure BHP is looking around as well as things move on with with this cycle. Um, so, so back to First Quantum for just a moment. So, uh, you know, First Quantum kind of forward financed Northern Dynasty, and uh, so that that worked out. Uh, you know, I think it benefited both sides there, but nonetheless, Northern Dynasty got some forward financing. In yeah. your view. Uh, did First Quantum back out because of their obligations at Cabri, uh, Panama, or do you see them just kind of with their debt loads and so forth? Was it kind of was it no. too much to take on? No. Um, 
it became a timing issue in terms of them being able to focus their people on the work that needed to be done to justify entering into the larger $1.5 million, $1.5 billion agreement. I mean, you know, the issue became, okay, if, if, if we give you an extension till the end of the year and, and we're still in the same spot, then I'm in, in, in deep trouble. Um, and you may not have, have progressed to where you need to be able to make the decision in any event. So, um, you know, the reality is it's a small world. Everybody talks, everybody knows about projects. I mean, Pebble has had so much airtime. There's hardly anybody in the mining industry that doesn't know all about it. And, uh, you know, and anybody that's in there's, there's so much data in the data room. We've had lots of many, many companies in the data room, um, and they take a look at it. I mean, it's. Uh, I would say that that um, the draft EIS is going to be a coming out moment for for uh, the Pebble project because it's going to be a signal that this is this is what is, you know, highly potentially permitted. Well, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here. Uh, Vesters uh, tend to. I used to be a baseball player, so am I? Am I a catcher or am I a batter? If you're throwing <laughs> we'll a curveball, I'm here. Yeah. Because if it, if it doesn't curve properly and I'm the catcher, I'm going to throw a knuckleball back at you. Okay. So so investors tend to forget about the cyclicality of uh, and the sentiment features of the natural resource business. So we're still in bear sentiment territory in 2019 after a 2016 pop for the sector. As you and I know, attracting big players in this business during the lows of the cycle is extremely difficult as companies lean up and raise cash for survival. In the event that a substantial partnering deal cannot be reached until later in the cycle when sentiment is good and the good times are rolling, will Northern Dynasty consider getting together with maybe a mid-tier or a junior producer in order to enjoy the same, uh, some of the sustaining cash flow from other operational mines while it advances the future pipeline of projects such as Pebble? So for in other words, Ron, to give you a name, why wouldn't a Tosico match up well for establishing an existing sustaining long-term business that can go in alone at Pebble until the right time comes. So um, I'll answer, you know, I'll get to the big question about, you know, how we do this in the future, but, you know, yet yeah, SQL would be ideal, except it's a related party. And so yeah. you, you end up with a, with a lot of hoops to jump through and, and maybe you can't get through all of those hoops. So not, not necessarily the best example, but um, so with respect to Pebble, because we don't need that much money over the next 12 to 24 months, um, doing a deal with us is not, it's not going to be expensive for anybody. Almost any mining company can afford it. And, and also because it's such a large asset, a lot of consortiums could undertake it. When you look at Antamina, at the, you know, at, at the trough of, of the last great uh, bear cycle, which was 2002, um, you had uh, Falcon Bridge, Naranda, um, Tech, and, and Mitsubishi all come together to to build what was then going to be the most expensive mine built in the history of mining. Which was Antamina at I think it was 2.2 billion dollars. So um, these deals can be done at the bottom of the cycle. I, don't, I mean, I, and I don't think we're anywhere near where the, the metal cycle was in 2002. We're not we're not bull, but we're we're also not bear. I mean, if it wasn't for the trade issues, we'd probably have copper at well over three dollars. Uh, maybe we wouldn't have gold where it is, but we'd have copper over three bucks. Um, so. There's there's a number of sources. The other thing is, again, because we don't need a lot of money, we had quite a bit of interest from private equity groups. And again, the the draft EIS is going to be important because you know they want to know that there's an exit strategy. The amount of money we need is is almost immaterial to most private equity firms. And if they can see an exit strategy that's going to turn them the kinds of returns that they're looking for, which that you know, typically, you know, they want a, a two and a half to five percent uh, multiple. 
uh, over a reasonable time period. And so that, as long as they're confident, it gets a permit. And that confidence level takes a big jump when the draft EIS is issued. Then there's there's the streaming guys. Again, we've talked to a lot of streaming guys, and, and when when permits are uncertain, um, the amount of money you can raise by by way of streaming is is expensive money. But once it becomes, you know, the, the permit becomes, you know, it's we can see it. It's 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 out there. It's maybe a year, eighteen months away. The the uh, the streaming guys take a look at Pebble and go, oh my god. I mean, there's five hundred million ounces of silver in that. Well, that that's that's a massive silver deposit. But guess what? It's less than two percent of the value of the project. You know, we, we produce one and a half million ounces of silver in a heartbeat per year. I mean, it's so. There's lots of opportunities for this. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to overemphasize my position. You know, I don't want people to get overly confident in in all this. But this this is a unique, unique project, and there's a tremendous amount of interest in this. If it weren't for the the Obama EPA, we would have been gone long ago. We would have been gone in 2011. The 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 <laughs> the eagles were soaring overhead. We were trading at 2.2 billion dollars. And people wanted to buy us. And we only owned 50% of the project at that point in time. And a total of only $500 million had been spent. Now, it's not quite 2011, but it's not that far off. And 2020 is probably going to be like that. And you mentioned, it was another another topic I was going to ask you about, you mentioned uh, potential you know, names like a Royal, a Royal Gold, a Franco Nevada, Silver Wheat, et cetera. Um, offtake, offtake deals and potential royalty stream deals. On, on the whole, uh, overall, uh, even with JVs or, or partners, uh, do you see something in the next uh, year or two possibly coming out as far as an announcement related to that? Or uh, is, there, is there any news or information you can give us on that front? Well, my, my real preference would be to do a deal with a partner, an operating level partner. So that that that's we could advance the the permitting, you know everything on that front works better with with a, a, the right operating partner who wants to take this thing into production. But failing that, there's lots of money out there. I, I keep telling people, you know, I mean, I, you know, at, at our AGM we had some NGOs who were trying to say, well, you'll never get this finance. I said, you guys, you have no idea. I mean, we're offered money all the time. Uh, we did this financing right. in. September or in in December, I mean, we did seven. We were offered twenty five. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, and, and not is, just from one party. I mean, we market. we took the money. We we took the money from all of our shareholders. We didn't the guys that offered us twenty five. We didn't take their money. Right, and this this is in the middle of a bit of when sentiment really arguably is pretty low. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that one. I, we know that something's coming. Uh, we'll leave that one alone. But uh, speaking, I'd, say I'd uh, rather speak leave those kinds. Of, I'd rather leave those kinds of financings for the the capital needs, offtake financings right. for capital needs, and even streaming for capital needs because that's when you get the best price. That's right. Yep. Yeah, that you makes can see sense. the drool. You can see the drool coming out of the left corner of their lip. <laughs> so it's, I'm, I'm going to go back. Call the tell. I got to I got to come on to uh, the in, the energy side here for a moment, and I just got to put this this idea out there because I think it's something that uh, people haven't really thought about, and I think it really is needed in these remote project regions. Um, and I know that we've got a little bit of time left to go, but it is in process. I think both in Canada and certainly in the U.S. Uh, with the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So it brings me to the topic of small modular reactors, and Absolutely. has yeah. Northern has, has Northern Dynasty. I mean, we see these. You know, Russia has floating reactors. Uh, we yep. see small scale reactors in submarines, nuclear submarines, and other military equipment, and and, and boats even. 
So has Northern Dynasty considered the total capex and life of generation costs with nat gas power spread over the life of the mine against that of using small modular reactors uh, as a cost-effective long-term alternative? Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you that we have looked at, uh, and it's been an idea that's been out there for a while. In fact, the Canadian government has actually uh, got a uh, initiative underway right now where they're funding a... Um, a group uh, with a view to completing a feasibility study on uh, remote location, remote villages in the Arctic with a small modular uh, nuclear power plant. And um, we've, you know, again, we've been aware of this for some time. And yes, that's probably um, a, an excellent alternative. Have we done all the costing on it? No. Um, it's probably not something in the wheelhouse right now just because it's one of those environmentally it's for the same reason that we said let's not put cyanide in we probably wouldn't write the, the the modular and that i mean i hate even saying that because the reality is engineering should drive the decision not emotion yes. but we got to get we got to get by some of the emotion until we get that that license to operate, and then I think I think I think Alaska is a prime place in all of America. All these little communities, which which are serviced only by you know fly-in fuel, is ridiculous. These these remote modular uh, power plants, nuclear power plants, would just be ideal. And I, I just I mentioned that because I, we follow New Scale Power out of Oregon. Um, they're the most advanced w with regards to the NRC application, expected uh, 2021 full approvals, and they already have they already have a deal going in Idaho, their first test plant, a pilot plant, if you will, um, there. And the features and they're 60 megawatts, though a single module yep. is 60 megawatts. The features of, the, of these things, uh, from a safety standpoint. And longevity and you know carbon free are just substantial, and so anyway, I thought I would mention that to you. No, no, no listen, I, I'm, I'm aware of it, um, and it's it was it's been kind of on the radar. We've been watching it on and off for at least a half dozen years. So, so Ron, I know you and I aren't going to be around forever. So, what is your personal plan going forward? Really? Are you, <laughs> are, are, you uh, are you committed to leading Northern Dynasty through permitting and to either operations or a buyout? Uh, and if if that's the case, do you see the goal of the company is, hey, let's get this wrapped up during the next commodities bull market? I I I'm at my shareholders' beck and call. Uh, you know. My general belief is that Pebble is the kind of project that once the mining world sees that there's a green light on it, um, we we that the choice won't be mine. Is that that somebody's going to want to buy us, and my uh, responsibility will be to get the highest and best price for my shareholders. That said, I I I'm completely committed to seeing this thing through permitting and if necessary, construction development. I mean, nothing would, would make me happier than, you know, to be standing there cutting the ribbon on, on opening day or with a partner on opening day doing the same. I'm not going anywhere in the next few years anyways. I keep Great. myself in, in good nick. I go, I, I swim about three kilometers a day, five days a week, so. Oh, that's that's excellent. Maybe I should maybe I should step up my efforts and and get up to where you're at. <laughs> so so, I, so I, I feel like I know a lot of what the fish feel. So. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, let me let me ask you uh, for for potential investors who are listening to this uh, this discussion uh, and that are considering Northern Dynasty but aren't shareholders. What would you say to them, and why should they consider Northern Dynasty now today? It's the asset. It's always about the asset. I've gone to one of, one of my partners here, Russ Hallbar, is a mining engineer, um, hardcore, you know, a Mark Bristol kind of a guy. And and Russ says, you know, I've I've made and lost money on a lot of junior stocks, but he said I've hardly ever lost money when there's been a resource, a real resource there. And it, and it generally is 
about the asset. When you look at the asset and you look at it and say, you know, even bad management can screw up such a, a great asset. Good management can make it so, so much better. I mean, poor assets require extremely good asset, good management to deal with them. But this asset right. is, you know, this asset will overcome the negativism. It has that capacity. You know, and if, if, you, if you're the kind of person that looks around and... Uh, and and isn't disconnected, understands where all this stuff comes from, what modern society is all about, what the developed world, and understands that the rest of the world just wants a little piece of what we have. And to give them that little piece, you know, we're going to have to grow our copper production market by probably 25, 30% over the next 15 years. It's a simple decision. You know, to replace what's what's falling off the table in terms of, of uh, production capacity, we probably need a pebble every two years for the next decade, and and it's going to be very hard to do that. And we're in in the most rigorous evaluation and permitting jurisdiction in the world, and we're in the safest title jurisdiction in the world. Ron, so how can investors learn more about the company? Well, we've got uh, obviously the Northern Dynasty website uh, a lot of information there um, also army corps runs a website for pebble and then and then pebble has its own website pebble limited partnership so there's lots of sources of information well ron it's uh, been a pleasure and i appreciate the extensive discussion and thanks for taking the time okay andrew well thank you for the opportunity